All right. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to Eaglebrook Church. Really good to have you with us today. If you're at one of our six campuses or if you're watching this message online, we're about to launch online church in a month, so your experience is going to get even better. Uh, Today, we are continuing on in a series that we've been in called I Believe in God, But, because as we've been saying, about 90% of Americans believe that God exists. Even after a decade of atheist authors like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris mocking anyone who dares call themselves a Christian, a majority of Americans a decade later still say, you know what, I believe in God. But it doesn't mean that they don't have questions, which is what this series has been all about. Today's message might be the most common objection that you'll hear. Today's message is, I believe in God, but I'm not sure about the Bible. We are living in what researchers say is maybe the most biblically illiterate time in American history. According to researcher George Barna, 65% of Americans believe that the Bible contains all of the answers to life's most important questions. That seemed like kind of a high number to me, 65%. But of those 65%, 28% of them say that they rarely, if ever, read the Bible. I mean, just think about that for a moment. 65% say, you know what? I believe the Bible contains all of the answers to life's most important questions. But at least 28% of them go, but I actually never read this book. It's like someone who's starving to death right outside the door of a pizza ranch. It's like, all you got to do is open up the door. I don't get it. Personally, I don't think I could get through life without regularly reading the Bible. In fact, a few years ago, I had a meeting here at work that really just left me feeling drained and discouraged. And I'll bet you have meetings like that at work as well. I was supposed to be home at 5 o'clock. We were going to go over to my mother-in-law's house for dinner, but at 5 o'clock, the meeting had just ended. And so as I was leaving the office, I called my wife. I said, you know, I'm just walking out the door. She said, oh, we're going to be late. I'm so frustrated. And I could just feel my stress level rising. I pulled out onto County Road 14, heading west, when all of a sudden, a group of 10 middle school boys on their bikes cut right in front of my car. No crosswalk, no nothing. I had to slam on my brakes to avoid hitting the first kid on his bike. And you could tell these kids, they didn't give a rip because I just had to sit there in the middle of the road while they crossed in front of my car like a bunch of geese. It was infuriating. And so I did what any red-blooded American would do. I just laid on my horn which is completely pointless. I mean, I should have gotten out and spanked each one of them. That might have actually made a difference. (laughs) But finally, the last little goose crossed in front of my car. And as he did, he swooped down in front of me and he goes, (laughs) and for just a moment, I thought, you know, I don't want to kill that kid, but I wonder if I just hit my accelerator really fast, if I could clip his back tire and knock him on his butt. When you are contemplating a hit and run as a pastor, (laughs) you know you're not in the best spot. Your your stress level might be a little bit high if you're a pastor contemplating a hit and run. And so for the rest of the car ride home, I thought, you know what, I just need to relax. I'll listen to some music. First song, Miley Cyrus, Party in the USA. I'm glad there's a party in the USA, but that was not what I needed at that moment. So I shut off the radio, and as I was driving in silence, and I believe this was God, 
But I had a Bible verse come to my mind that I had read just that morning. It's from Jeremiah 15, verse 16, and Jeremiah is speaking to God here. He says this, your words are what sustain me. They bring me great joy and my heart's delight. Let me ask you, what sustains you? That when you feel like you're stressed out and you feel discouraged or frustrated in life, what do you turn to and go, you know, if I could just have that, if I could just get that, that would sustain me, that would get me through. For me, it's hearing from God. If I know that God is with me and I know that God is in control and, and I sense that God is speaking into my life, I say, you know what, that can sustain me. I can get through this. Jeremiah says, your words are what sustain me. They bring me great joy and my heart's delight. God's words, not Miley Cyrus' words, were what were going to sustain me in that moment. And even when work and relationships and middle school boys who are going to be on America's Most Wanted in 10 years or less, don't give me a lot of joy. God's word is my joy and my delight. Now, some of you hear that and you think, seriously, the Bible, that's what's going to sustain you, that's what's going to encourage you, that's what you're going to turn to in that kind of situation when you're stressed out, the Bible. One New Age author says, you know, Christians, you need to stop quoting letters that are 2,000 years old. And maybe you feel the same way. Maybe you think, you know, the Bible is old and outdated. Or maybe you think, you know what, I've heard that the Bible is filled with contradictions, And there's translation errors. I mean, we have all these translations. Who knows what the Bible really said? Or maybe you say, you know, I think the Bible has some great moral teachings. I'm all for do not judge. I mean, I love it when Jesus said that. I'm all for treating other people as you want to be treated. But let's be honest, that stuff didn't really happen, right? I mean, we're talking fairy tales and myths here. In 2015, Newsweek magazine ran a cover article that was titled, The Bible So Misunderstood It's a Sin. Now, before I read this article, I thought, oh, how cool is this? Newsweek magazine is writing an article to clear up some misconceptions that people have about the Bible. But three or four pages in, I thought to myself, who wrote this? Because there was at least a half a dozen factual errors that I knew that no New Testament scholar would make. So I googled the author's name, and found out he was an editor at Vanity Fair. No biblical degree, no biblical education. He wasn't a professor or a scholar of New Testament or Old Testament. He had never written anything substantial on the Bible in his life. It showed. Let me read to you one excerpt from this article. Here's what he writes. He says, The Bible is loaded with contradictions, translation errors, and wasn't written by eyewitnesses, but unknown scribes who injected church orthodoxy. In other words, according to Newsweek magazine, the Bible is not reliable history. And if it's not reliable history, you certainly shouldn't bank your life on it. You certainly shouldn't go out of your way to teach it to your kids. It's not what you should turn to to encourage you and to sustain you when you're going through life because it's not even reliable history. It's filled with errors. I want to challenge that today. I want to argue to you that the Bible is reliable history. You should build your life on it. It is something you can teach to your kids. 
and turn to for wisdom on your marriage and your life and how to live. Let me give you three reasons why the Bible is historically reliable. Here's the first one. The Bible has archaeological support. Think about this. If the Bible were unreliable history, then we should expect to find new archaeological discoveries at least every year that contradict what the Bible says is true. In fact, the opposite is the case. Archaeology keeps confirming the Bible. Let me just give you one example of this from Luke chapter 3. Here's what Luke writes in chapter 3. He says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, the ruler of Galilee, his brother Philip, the ruler of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. Being able to pronounce those names is the payoff of years of seminary, okay? <laughs> Not many of you can do that. That's job security for me, okay? That's what keeps me where I am. Now, here's the question that I have for you. How concerned was Luke with historical detail? I'd say he was very concerned with it. I mean, this is not the kind of language that you see in fairy tales and myths. You don't read this kind of thing in stories about Thor or Hercules. It doesn't say in a land far, far away, the word of God came to John. It doesn't say once upon a time, the word of God came to John. Luke was historically precise. So precise, in fact, that each one of these names and cities and places have been confirmed as real people who ruled during that time, get this, by sources outside of the Bible, non-Christian documents and sources even. But for years, scholars doubted what Luke said here because of this man, Lysanias. The historical records show that he ruled 50 years earlier than Luke says that he did. But then recently, they found an inscription that showed that Lysanias did in fact rule in Abilene between the years of 14 and 29 AD. Turns out there were two Lysaniases, and Luke was right. Over and over again, archaeology has confirmed the Bible, causing leading archaeologist Nelson Gluck to say this. He says, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a single biblical reference. I mean, you just think about that for a moment. They're making thousands of discoveries archaeologically every single year. And not one of them has ever contradicted a biblical reference. He says, sources, scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. Friends, this is different than any other religious book. For example, the Book of Mormon claims to detail the events that took place in the Americas between the years of 600 B.C. and 400 A.D. But according to the Smithsonian Institute, and you can look this up for yourself, there is not one piece of archaeological evidence that supports the Book of Mormon's claims. In other words, no Book of Mormon city has ever been located no Book of Mormon artifacts have ever been discovered. No Book of Mormon names, nations, persons, or places have ever been found. Nothing that would ever substantiate the Book of Mormon's claims. Contrast that to the Bible. 
Every year, it seems, they're discovering ruins of a city. And they're finding out that that city existed exactly when the Bible says it did. And that city was destroyed exactly when the Bible says that it was. The Bible has archaeological support. Here's the second reason why the Bible is historically reliable. The Bible was accurately translated. See, some people look at the Bible kind of like that game telephone that you would play as a kid. Remember that? Where you get in a circle and one person would whisper to the first person, Bob Merritt is the senior pastor at Eagle Brook Church. And then that message would have to get around the circle to the last person and you would see if it would kind of make it around. And inevitably, you'd get to the last person and they would go, Senior Bob shoots eagles by the brook while listening to Eric Church? And you're like, no, that's not what we... How did that get mixed up? And that's how some people see the Bible. They say, well, you know, there's all these translations. And these scribes, you know, they were injecting their own agenda into it. I mean, we don't really know what the Bible said. But is that true? Well, to examine this, historians look at two criteria. The first one is, how many manuscripts do we have? Because then you can compare them to one another. And the second criteria is, how close are those manuscripts to the original? Because they found that legends don't develop within the lifetime of people who were alive during those events. It takes hundreds of years. With those two criteria in mind, let's look at how the Bible compares to some other ancient documents that historians consider to be reliable. So we've got Julius Caesar, who wrote a book called The Gaelic Wars, and we have 10 copies of that dating 1,000 years from the original. A guy named Pliny the Younger, nephew to Pliny the Older. I'm actually serious about that. Uh, He wrote a book called Natural History, and we have seven copies of that that date 750 years from the original. This next one is quite famous, Homer's Iliad. We have a whopping 600 copies of that. These are ancient copies, ancient documents. And they date about 1,000 years after the original. Now, what would make you feel good about the Bible? If we have 600 copies of the Iliad, would maybe 700 copies of the Bible, would you feel good about that? Or if we have 10 of Julius Caesar, would 15 of the Bible make you feel pretty good? According to Bruce Metzger from Princeton University, who was the world's leading expert on this, we have 24,000 ancient copies, ancient documents of just the New Testament. It's not even including the Old Testament. And some of these copies or fragments date 50 years after the original. This is unheard of in the ancient world. We don't have any other document that even comes close. It's why scholar Norman Geisler says that the Bible you hold in your hand is 99.5% pure. And what he means by pure is when you compare documents that are 50 years old, 100 years old, 1,000 years old, they begin to match up. In other words, the Bible you have in your hand is most likely an accurate translation of the original. Here's the third reason why the Bible is historically reliable. It's this. The Bible contains eyewitness accounts. If you were wanting some information about the Civil War, what would you trust? Would you trust a document written by an eyewitness 30 years after Gettysburg? Or would you trust one written by a non-eyewitness 250 years later? Well, it's not hard to answer that question, right? You'd, you'd choose the eyewitness 30 years later. 
Now, I bring this up because if you've ever watched the History Channel, for example, you may have seen that people talk about how there's hundreds of Gospels. You know, yeah, there was four that got chosen for the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but there was really many other Gospels. And the reason that those four got chosen was it was kind of a political power play by the church to gain power. And we eat that stuff up. Red state, blue state, conspiracy, it's right up our alley. But is that actually true? Let's go back to our Civil War analogy for a moment. The four Gospels were written by eyewitnesses. Matthew and John were with Jesus. They were disciples. Mark was writing down what Peter told him to write. Peter was an eyewitness. And Luke interviewed several eyewitnesses for his gospel. When were they written? Well, John was the latest. It was written in about 90 AD, which was 60 years after Jesus died on the cross. Mark was the earliest, written around 45 or 55 AD, which was only like 12, 15 years after Jesus died on the cross. What about all these other gospels, these Gnostic gospels that you hear about on the History Channel? Were they written by eyewitnesses? Not even close. They were written about 250 years after the events took place. In other words, there's no conspiracy here. It's easy to see why the church chose the four gospels that they did. In fact, late, earlier this year, I read a book called The Gospel of Our Lord by Michael Byrd. And I am recommending this book to no one, okay? In case you are, a, unless you're a total nerd like I am, you don't wanna read this book. But there was one section that was really interesting to me. It talked about how the early church viewed the Bible. So we're talking about the generation after the disciples. This was about 200 AD. And they all said the same thing. They said, you know, Matthew, he was writing to a Jewish audience. That's why he quotes the Old Testament so often. And he wanted them to see that Jesus was the one who was promised in the Old Testament. And they said, you know, Mark, he was a companion of Peter. And Peter was in Rome, and he was talking about Jesus, and they were like, we are never going to remember this. Somebody needs to write this down. Mark's like, okay, I'll write it down. And that's how we got the Gospel of Mark. And then at the end of John's life, people came to him and they said, John, you, you, you ought to write a Gospel. And he goes, well, why would I? I mean, we got Matthew, Mark, Luke. But then John decided to write a spiritual Gospel, a spiritual perspective on the events that took place, which is why John is a little different than the other three. Now, here's why this was fascinating to me. First of all, you may have wondered, why do we have four Gospels and not just one? Why do we need four? We, we only really need one, right? Well, well, now you know. It was four different authors writing to four different audiences, writing about the same story but with a different purpose. But here's what was fascinating to me. The Bible is so realistic. It's so historical. It's so earthy even. I mean, can't you just imagine Peter? He's talking to these people in Rome about what he saw with his own two eyes, that he saw Jesus resurrect from the dead, and they're like, you gotta write this down. So Mark's like, okay, I'll write that down for you. And then look at what John writes in the last sentence of his gospel. He says this, and I suppose that if all the other things Jesus did were written down, the whole world could not contain the books. That's the last sentence of his gospel. It's almost like his hand was getting tired. He's like, I'm, I'm going to get carpal tunnel here. I mean, I just got to stop. Okay, I could keep going, but I'm just going to land the plane. Contrast this to other religious books. Muhammad wrote the Quran based upon a vision that he supposedly had 
while he was alone in a cave. Joseph Smith wrote the Book of Mormon based upon a vision that he supposedly had while staring at some crystals in a hat. Two men, all alone, both writing based on personal visions. The Bible is different. The Bible was public. It was, I saw Jesus resurrect from the dead. Well, now tell me about that. Write that down. Copy that for me. It's why Paul says to Timothy at the end of his letter to him, he says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true. Let me pause here for a moment and ask you, where do you turn to for wisdom and truth? That when you're trying to decide what you think is right and wrong and how you should live your life, what is your primary source for that? For some people, it's the self-help book industry. That's a $9.6 billion a year industry. Comedian Stephen Wright says that if you're ever at the bookstore and somebody asks you where the self-help section is, that you should just tell them, I can't tell you that, it would defeat the purpose. <laughs> you need to go help yourself, okay? Take a step towards some self-help by going and finding the book for yourself. And not only is the book a big industry, but the self-help magazine industry is quite large as well. In fact, as I was preparing this message, I read the most popular women's magazine of all time. And I actually read every single article that was ever written in that magazine. You talk about a dedication. And I compiled every one of those articles into four different categories, because that's really all that there were in this magazine, just four different categories of articles. The magazine, no doubt you've heard of it, is Cosmo Self, Martha, World of Living Help. <laughs> and there's really only four articles that are in this magazine. I'll break it down for you. 21% of what guys secretly think of your makeup. 24%, what he's thinking when you enter the room. 26%, the secret to getting any guy. And 29%, how to decode his body language. And if you read these articles, I'm just telling you, their advice is all wrong. I want to clear this up for you as a man, okay? If you are a single lady, all the single ladies, okay? <laughs> you need to take some notes on this, all right? This is important for you. I'm going to answer each of these questions. Here's the first one. What guys secretly think of your makeup? What's the score? What's the score? There's a guy in third. Did he score? I didn't see what happened there. What's he thinking when you enter the room? What's the score? I went out, and now all of a sudden we're down by four. What happened? 26%. The secret of getting any guy, know the score, okay? And you got to feed him, okay? That's just, that's ground level right there. If you don't do that, you don't even stand a chance. Now, how to decode his body language. This is very subtle, okay? You got to get this. Here's a picture of him when his team is winning, and here's a picture of him when his team is losing, Okay? Winning, losing, winning, losing. Okay, now let's bring them up both at the same time. And I want you to notice the difference here. Because it's about a one millimeter difference right there in his lips. And this is very important because this is how men communicate about everything. I mean, I talk to wives all the time and they're like, I just wish my husband would open up. I just wish he would tell me how he's feeling and, and, and those kinds of things. And I'm like... He's bearing his soul, okay? <laughs> He's telling you everything that's going on inside of his heart, but you're just not paying attention. 
Now, men, you're not off the hook on this one. You have your own magazine. Your magazine is called Men's Journaling of GQ Self. And there's only three articles that are in this magazine. 37% getting great abs. 34% getting killer abs. 29% lose your gut and get super abs, okay? <laughs> now, you might say, that's not my source of wisdom and truth. I mean, I don't go to magazines like that as my source of what's right and wrong and how I should live my life. But, but what about this? What about going online? I talk to Christians all the time who read more blogs than they do the Bible. And you can just tell that they get their views on what's true and what's right and wrong from blogs and podcasts and listening to what other people have to say about it. In fact, for years, I used to wake up in the morning and first thing I would do, who's, who won last night and what's going on on social media? And then I noticed that my oldest son would do that. And I felt this sense of regret. I felt this sense of regret that I wish what I would have modeled for him is waking up in the morning and going, God, what do you want to say to me today? I want to hear from you. Now, there's nothing wrong with blogs and there's nothing wrong with social media and going online, but the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. I mean, you show me another book that's been on the bestseller list for two or three hundred years. This book has survived bannings and burnings. It has survived criticism and ridicule. Kings and emperors and rulers, they have tried to keep this book from you. In fact, in 1536, a guy named William Tyndale, who we've named Tyndale Printing Press after, he was ordered to die by strangulation. As if that wasn't enough, after he was dead, they burned his body on a stake. What was Tyndale's crime? He had translated the Bible into English. But Tyndale had used one of his last breaths to pray that God would open the eyes of the king of England. A prayer that was answered two years later when King Henry, the man who had ordered him to die, authorized a printing of the English Bible, a work that was largely based on Tyndale's work. Friends, men and women have died so that you could read this book. Now, some of you are thinking, you know, I, I tried to read it. I read through Genesis, I got to Exodus, and then it's talking about the dimensions of the tabernacle and sacrificing animals, and I was like, I just don't get it. I don't understand it, and it was boring, and so I just kind of put it away. And what I would say to you is start small and let it grow. Years ago, our treadmill at home broke down, and so for a week, I was lifting weights every day after work. And so about two days into this, I was in the bathroom trying to flex my pectoral muscles in the mirror, and trying being the operative word, it wasn't going great, when my wife Sarah walked in, and so I turned to her and I go, hey look, I'm getting ripped. Now, we've been married for 15 years, so I don't know why I thought that maybe she'd be like, you know, kind of thing. Or... You know, maybe at the very least she'd be like, yeah, dog, you know, kind of thing. But instead she just looked at me and she goes, oh, oh, I don't know what that means. But here's the truth. You don't get ripped in two days. You lift and then over time your muscles get stronger until one day you're able to lift something that was previously impossible for you. The same is true for the Bible. You don't get spiritually ripped in two days. 
You don't begin to understand the Bible after a couple weeks of reading it. But if you keep reading it, over time it starts to make more sense. And then one day you'll be able to do something that was previously impossible for you. At least that's how it was for me. Remember when I was 16 years old, I got invited to a Bible study. And the leader of the Bible study said, open up your Bibles to Matthew, which is in the New Testament. And I honestly thought, my friend Matthew is over here, but we call him Matt. Nobody calls him Matthew. And what do you, New Testament? Is, like a, is that a video game? Like, what are you talking about here? I had no idea. But then my freshman year of college, I began to read the Bible before I went to bed at night. And slowly over time, I began to understand some of it. Not, not a lot of it, but some of it started to make sense to me. And then one day, I remember that I got really frustrated with something and with someone. But I held my tongue because I thought about a Bible verse that I had just read in James that talks about how destructive the tongue can be and, and how you need to have control over what you say. And then another time, I was feeling really weak in life and I was encouraged because I thought of a Bible verse from Philippians that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. And I felt the confidence to step out and try something for God. And then one time I had a friend who was struggling and I quoted to him a Bible verse from memory. That had previously been impossible for me. Now I share this with you because some of you look at me and you think, well, you're a pastor. I mean, of course you read the Bible and you like reading the Bible. It's like your job, right? It's like what you get paid to do is to read and understand the Bible. I could never know the Bible that way. Well, if you plan on being alive for the next two or three years, you actually can. What if each of us in this church and watching online said, you know what, for the next few weeks, I'm gonna start reading one chapter of the Bible every day. Just one chapter. It would take you five or 10 minutes you could do it with your morning coffee. You could do it on your lunch break. You could do it before you go to bed. You could set an alarm on your phone. You say, well, I don't, I don't really like to read. You can download the YouVersion Bible app and you can listen to the Bible. I have a colleague who has listened to the Bible on his way into work and taking a walk around the lake after work five times this year, just listening to the Bible. Now you think about that for a moment. With all of the other voices in his life going, well, you should do this, and you shouldn't have done that, and why'd you do this, and this is what's true, and this is what's not true. He's taking time every day to step back and go, God, I want to hear your voice. Comedian Michael Jr. has a great illustration about this. Take a look. Yo, comedian Michael Jr. here. As you know, I just flat out enjoy doing comedy. But one of the things I love way more than that is being a dad. Not too long ago, I'm going through some video footage and I run into this video of my youngest daughter being born. Now, of course, I was there. I actually took the video, but I had never really experienced it from this perspective before. Now, look, we're in the hospital room. She's uh, sticky and she's baby and all that stuff. And she's in the middle of crying. And then I speak up. I start talking to her and watch how she responds when she hears my voice. Okay, Portland, look, I'm right here. It's okay, it's okay. I'm right here, I'm right here. We're doing just fine. It's okay, it's okay, I'm right here. Right here, yeah, it's okay. It's okay, baby, it's okay. 
that was pretty awesome. <laughs> so check it. A few minutes later, uh, the nurse starts working on her, puts her pamper on her, and uh, I'm not saying anything, and she actually starts to cry again. Then I speak up, she hears my voice, and stops crying, like again. But I want you to notice what else happens after I tell her that I love her. Portland, it's okay. It's okay. It's good. It's good. It's good. I'm right here. I'm right here. I am right here. I love you. I love you. I love you. Yeah, I'm right here. I'm right here. It's okay. It's okay. That's just phenomenal. <laughs> like, whoa. Here's the thing. We'll always have times where we're not as comfortable, probably even to the point of tears, where life is just heavy. The key thing to do in those moments is to be still and listen for the Father's voice because he is trying to talk to you. And I can tell you what he wants you to know is that he loves you. All you got to do is open your eyes. You know, there are some of us here today who you may be like that baby. There's so much stress in your life right now that you're almost just physically, you're shaking or you can feel the physical effects on your body. The stress is just so high. And what you really need more than anything else is to hear the voice of God and to hear the voice of God saying, do not fear. There are some of us here today who you are anxious and you're worried about something in your life. And what you really need more than anything else is to hear the voice of God and be reminded that he is in control of your life. There are some of us who have a big decision to make and we need some wisdom about that with our kids or with our marriage or with our job. And what you really need is to hear from God. But how will you hear from God unless you read this book? I mean, this is not just a normal book with words on pages. It's living. It's active. It's God's voice speaking into your life. What if each of us said, you know what, God, I'm going to listen this week. Every day I'm going to spend some time listening to you and what you have to say in my life. If you've never read the Bible before, we've got a Bible reading plan that we want to put in your hands. There's two ways you can get this. You can text the word Bible plan, just one word, to 555-888. Or you can stop off at the Next Steps area in the lobby of your campus and just say, hey, I want one of those Bible reading plans. And it's a chapter a day for the next 21 days. And I'm not saying that each day you're going to sense that God is speaking something to you. You probably won't. But there might be one days, one day or two days or more where you go, oh, Lord, that was just what I needed today. I needed you to challenge me in that area of my character. I needed you to encourage me or remind me of that. You got to read this book and listen to the Father's voice. Let's all stand together at each of our campuses as we close in prayer. Lord, I pray for that person listening to this message online or here 
And what they really need, God, what they need more than anything is to just hear your voice, to sense that you're speaking into their life. What what a thing that of all the billions of people on this planet, that there are moments when we read words on a piece of paper and we just know that that's for me, that that's God speaking directly into my life. God, that each of us would get to know you and trust you and that our faith would grow as we read your word, as we think about it, as we internalize it. And God, I pray for the people here who maybe have never read the Bible before. And over the next 21 days, they're gonna give it a shot. God, I pray there would be a couple moments when you would speak into their life and they would go, you know what? It may not be every day, but I don't wanna miss the opportunity to hear what God might want to say to me. God, would you give them supernatural understanding as they read? Would you help them connect to you? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you need prayer, come on down front. Otherwise, have a great day, everybody.